Mark chapter 1. Let's begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 15 once again. Brethren, this is the Word of God. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. For there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair, and with a girdle of a skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey, and preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost." And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered unto him. Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. Amen. Amen. Thus saith the scriptures. Brethren, I pray that our God will favor us and bless the reading of it to our hearts. John the Baptist and Jesus Christ both began their missions with the word... Repent. Yet many professing Christians today deny that repentance has anything to do with the gospel. The gospel, which is the power of God into salvation. So it is no little matter that we discuss and study this issue. We've chosen then to carefully examine the prologue to Mark's gospel so that we might clearly grasp the dawning of Messiah's great kingdom and its relation to repentance and faith. Jesus said, Repent ye and believe the gospel. Now what could be more clear? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, baptized in the Jordan by John, 
and baptized with the Holy Ghost by his heavenly Father, proclaims the advent of God's righteous kingdom with this command. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Now thus far, we have seen that both the Hebrew and the Greek terms that are translated into the English repent and repentance carry the meaning of sorrow and regret. But while this is an important aspect of repentance, the primary meaning of this word group in both Testaments is a change of mind. That's the primary usage of the biblical writers. A change of mind. The heart of repentance as expressed by those who penned Holy Scripture is a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior. Now, too often, the emphasis on repentance has been the emotional aspect of remorse rather than this radical change of thinking that leads to a permanent change of living. <clears throat> we'll also see in uh, a remaining message in the future, God willing, that often people confuse the fruits of repentance with repentance itself. The things that come from repentance. We need to make sure we identify those things properly. Scripture plainly reveals to us, brethren, that repentance is necessary because Christ commanded it, because men are sinners, and because there is no salvation without it. Likewise, God's Word shows us that the preaching of John, Jesus, and the apostles as commissioned by Jesus <clears throat> joins repentance, baptism, and the remission of sins for both Jew and Gentile. As Paul announced, God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Now furthermore, Scripture teaches us that repentance means to change one's mind about sin, to change one's mind about self, and to change one's mind about God. Until we see the vileness of our sins, the wickedness of our own hearts, the corruption of our self-centered, selfish lives, and God's holy justice coupled with His saving mercy in Christ, we will never turn to the Lord Jesus to save us from our sins. We might, quote, come to Him for a number of reasons. But the Gospel is about sinners. Jesus Christ came, as I have pointed out in these messages, not for the righteous, but He came to call sinners to repentance. And brethren, much of modern Christianity, especially professing 
modern American evangelicalism has jettisoned the notion of repentance. History forever changed with the dawning of the new covenant. And this is what we have here, the day spring here in this passage. John the Baptist has announced the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has come upon the scene. He's been baptized in Jordan. And the Holy Ghost comes down upon him, anointing him as our prophet, our priest, and our king. Messiah. And he announced that men ought to repent and believe the gospel. The Son of Righteousness arose with healing in His wings. And He inaugurated God's holy kingdom of righteousness. And what words did He use when He did that? Repent ye and believe the gospel. So, we take up this vital issue again. In our last message, we were to consider three points. We only made it through two of them. We covered, number one, the elements of repentance. And, number two, the urgency of repentance. And we will now resume with number three, the partner of repentance. The partner of repentance. That's our main thrust this morning. Now, God being our helper, I trust that as we move through this particular point, God will grant us clarity of mind, clarity of thought. Because of all the messages that we will do on repentance, as far as understanding the relationship between repentance and faith, this is the most important. If we err here, we can cause great damage in our preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So may God grant us undistracted minds and the attendance of His Spirit. Now contributing to the confusion surrounding the meaning of repentance has been the controversy regarding its relationship to faith. If we are saved by faith and faith alone, what part does repentance play? There are those who say that because we're saved by faith alone, and the Scriptures make that clear, that the addition of repentance in the Gospel message is our introducing works into a Gospel of grace. And if we were, in fact, introducing meritorious works into the preaching of the gospel, we would be distorting and corrupting the gospel. Which comes first, repentance or faith? If repentance and faith are joined, 
In what way are they joined? Now we will most likely stay confused about repentance until we grasp its interrelationship with faith. Repentance is the partner, or if you prefer, it's the associate of faith. While we may separate them like we dissect a body to study the parts, they are so vitally intertwined that they may never be successfully pulled apart without great damage to men's souls. And great damage to the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. Now this is no little matter. So let's consider first the order of faith and repentance. We're going to have to dive in a little bit and think this morning. We should always be thinking. And I understand sometimes when we come together on Sunday morning, we want Christ set before us evidently. And it's a little difficult sometimes for us to get in and have to wrestle through thinking through uh, what we might consider technical issues. But this is a very important one, brethren. And I pray with all of my heart that we might lay hold of it. Good and godly men throughout the ages of the Christian church have disagreed about the order of repentance and faith. I'm not talking about men who are in radically different theological systems. Of course, they disagree on some of those things. But I'm talking about men of our own understanding of the Word of God. Those who believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ. On one hand, men like David Martin Lloyd-Jones, Andrew Fuller, the great Baptist, if you're not familiar with him, Robert Louis Dabney, the great Presbyterian, uh, Arthur W. Pink, all insist that repentance comes first. You read them, they're vehement about it. Yet on the other hand, men such as John Calvin, Thomas Boston, John Colquhoun, and many of the Puritans taught that faith comes first. Now, I won't bore you with all the details of, of how this all came about, There are a number of arguments that I originally considered putting in and saying, these argue this, these argue that, and this is why. But I will leave that for uh, constructive uh, conversation and and edification that we might have over dinner or in in, uh, one of our living rooms. Uh, I will only go to a couple of the main heads so that I will not lose you in all of the, uh, the differing arguments, but I can hit the main ones, and that's what we want to do this morning. Now, in my studies, at least as far as I've been able to discern, John Calvin is really the father of the modern thinking that faith comes first, and it was because he was doing all that he could to defend the gospel from the notion of works. And because the Puritans were all students of Calvin, uh, even those that disagreed with him, even 
uh, even Arminius himself was a student of Calvin, loved his writings, thought his commentaries were absolutely wonderful and that everyone ought to read them. Even though uh, he invented his own system of theology in the light of <clears throat> the controversies of his day. Thankfully, all these men, from Lloyd-Jones to Calvin in Boston and others, they all unanimously agree that the two belong together. If men of this caliber do not agree, how are we to make sense of it? Well, let us consider first the biblical evidence. <clears throat> we will start with those who say that faith comes first, and we will just take their main argument, or at least what I believe to be the best one that they have. While there are numerous arguments offered for faith being first, Their primary argument is that the Word of God says, Hebrews 11, verse 6, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And this is true. This is no doubt, in my thinking, the best argument for this. Now, one of the passages they appeal to after this uh, Hebrews passage is Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. You read the Puritans, they, uh, all the ones that I've been able to read on it thus far, have uh, almost all to the man quoted this verse. Uh, Colquhoun, in his excellent book on repentance, which we publish, um, goes to this verse at least three times in the first few chapters. <clears throat> they go to Hebrews 11.6 and then to this one because it's the primary place that they believe they've made their case. Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 reads in this way, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the Spirit of grace and supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Now, as it is usually presented, they would say, See here, Christ is presented first. They shall look upon Him. So that means we look upon Christ in faith and then what? Then they shall mourn for Him as one mourneth for His only Son. So they say, we see the preeminency then of faith coming to Christ first, looking upon Christ, trusting Him as a willing Savior, and that would produce then in us evangelical repentance. 
Now, I agree with much of that. But I will explain in a few moments why I think we have to be very, very careful with this. First, I completely agree with Hebrews 11.6 telling us that without faith it is impossible to please God. How could we possibly offer, uh, or, or how could we possibly repent? We don't offer our repentance to the Lord Jesus, as I hope to show. But how can we possibly repent and it be pleasing to God except it be mixed with faith? Now that principle is right. But then let's think about Zechariah for just a few minutes. What we have here is a glorious prophecy regarding the things set forth on the day of Pentecost. If we go to Acts chapter 2, what do we see? This is a promise regarding the house of David David and the inhabitants of where? Jerusalem. What took place on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Ghost, which had filled the Lord Jesus Christ, had come upon Him at His baptism, was poured out on that glorious day upon Peter and the others that were gathered. And they went out, and what did they do? They preached the risen Savior. Did they not? What did they do? They held forth Christ and set the blame for His murder on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They said, the Savior came, Messiah, Lord, and you with wicked hands killed Him. They saw, they looked upon in the preaching of Peter, the pierced Christ. And they mourned. And what did they do after they mourned? They said, what shall we do? In other words, they're looking upon Christ and seeing Him at the moment that Peter was setting Him before them was a gaze upon their own sinful acts, their own wicked hands had crucified the Lord of glory. And so they were pierced over their sin. This is not clearly yet, as we see in the text, an understanding of salvation. And we know that by their question. What do we do? What do we do? So, Unfortunately, I think our brethren have put an emphasis in Zechariah that isn't there. It isn't a saving look to Christ and then repenting. It is those who are cut to the core with the sight in the preaching of the pierced ones whom they had killed. And they were convicted over their sins 
by the power of the Holy Ghost. And they were brought to see their crime against heaven. And that is why they cried out under the withering, convicting power of Peter's preaching. What do we do? And Peter told them, Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. So I do not think we can go to that chapter and say on the strength of it that the pattern for all the rest of of God's word regarding the issue of repentance and faith establishes here that faith is first. The problem isn't faith being mixed with repentance or vice versa. The problem, as we'll discuss in a little more detail, coming up, is when we take them and make them separate acts. So why do some say repentance comes first? Well, the primary and the obvious reason for this is that this is always the order that Scripture presents. Zechariah is usually the only passage that some of the, our brethren that believe that faith must come first, that's the only one they go to because they can't go to the others. When you find the verses where repentance and faith are mixed together, or when they appear in the same verse, repentance comes first, and then faith. What did Jesus say? The inauguration of his kingdom. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Now let's just look at a handful of passages. Matthew chapter 21, verse 28. Here we find the Lord Jesus saying to the religious leaders of his day, But what think ye? A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. Afterward he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. And went not. Whether of them twain did the will of his father. They say unto him, the first. Jesus saith unto them, who had just answered that way. Verily, truly, I say unto you that the publicans and harlots Go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him, 
And ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterwards that ye might believe him. Repent. Believe. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke this parable going after the wickedness of the Pharisees and their hypocrisy. And it's clear, taken in the whole context of its chapter, He is saying, You are like the second son who said, Oh, I go. Israel had said that all through its history. Read Exodus 19. God had brought them out with a mighty hand from Egypt. He brings them to the glorious mount. And He's about to give them His wonderful law. He says, you'll be my God. Excuse me, I will be your God. You'll be my people. And they say, okay, we'll do it. We agree. We'll enter into covenant with you and we'll be your people. Well, what do we find out about them? In the main, they were a stiff-necked and rebellious people, were they not? And over and over throughout their history, it's the same pattern. I go. Sure, I agree with this. Yes, we'll covenant with our God. And then they go their own way. He said, in other words, you talk God's religion, but you do not do it. You're like the second son. He says, the tax collectors and the harlots go in to heaven, into the kingdom of God, before you. Now, very little could have been said to the Pharisees that would have hit them more like a thunderclap. Because they were they who justified themselves before men. They thought they were right with God when Jesus identified them as whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. They talked religion. And as far as people looking upon them externally, they looked fine. Jesus says, the lowlifes, the bottom feeders of society, if I can use that kind of language without sounding irreverent. And I don't mean to be insulting. Few were thought lower than the tax collectors because of their wickedness and the way they fraudulently dealt with the people. And of course, they understood the vileness and the corrupt lives of the prostitutes. And Jesus says, these are like the first son. No, we're going to do what we want to do. We're going to live the way we want to live. But there was a radical change of their minds. And when they heard the word that John preached, the harlots and the tax collectors, 
went down to the river where John was preaching and baptizing and entered into the waters and confessed their sins. I have stolen. I've ripped people off. I'm a harlot. I am wicked. And they were baptized unto the remission of sins. They changed their minds. And that is why when the Lord brings that parable to its close, He says to them, These publicans and harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. John came unto you in the way of righteousness. Righteousness is equated in Scripture with being and doing what God commands us to be and to do. What did John come saying? Repent! And the tax collectors and the harlots repented and were baptized of John. John came in the way of righteousness calling on men to repent of their sins, the opposite of righteousness, and to be baptized for the pardon of their sins, believing on the coming Mighty One. That's the way of righteousness. God commanded it. And Jesus said, He came to you, He told you these things, and you wouldn't hear Him. Notice the order He puts it. The publicans and the harlots believed him. And ye, when ye had seen it, seen what? Him preaching repentance and seeing the harlots and the tax collectors repenting, being baptized. He said, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward that ye might believe him. There's the order. Repenting, believing. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, which we've alluded to already several times in this message. We will only point to it again. Christ coming after John, after he'd been put into jail, comes preaching the time is fulfilled, as we saw last week. The kingdom of God is at hand. It has drawn near. It is, in the, it is God's sovereign rule in the person of Jesus Christ. It has come near. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, the day of Pentecost, which we've already spoken. On the day of Pentecost, Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, boldly preached, Repent! And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. What is it that they're believing? What is it that they want? What is their heart's cry? Forgive me! What's the order? Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Their baptism was the open profession of their repentance and believing for forgiveness together. But the order that it's set before us is repent for the remission of sins. Why did Peter preach it this way? Because it's exactly the way that Jesus Christ commanded it in Luke 24. 
In Luke 24, in verses 47, 48, the Lord Jesus Christ says, I want you to preach to all the nations. Repentance for the remission of sins. And this exactly is Peter's order. He preaches exactly what Christ told him to say. Acts chapter 20, verse 21. The Apostle Paul. Who is he? The Apostle to the Gentiles. Yes, he went to the Jews first, and then he went to the Gentiles. Acts 13. It's wonderful to read it. You can go and read that passage and read it over and over. It's a glorious passage. But how does he describe his ministry? He says, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And this very plainly sets forth the negative, if we want to say it that way, and the positive sides of repentance and faith. They are intertwined. Repentance is the negative side. Faith is the positive side. Repentance sees its wickedness. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. 
were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.